And here we are in the evening time with it like that again. And so it's always nice, I think, to have good, wonderful weather like this. Let me turn this light out so that I don't look like a shadow standing up here. All right, First Timothy chapter 6, and I'm going to read the first three verses, and then we're going to talk about living for God. And so it says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. First Timothy chapter 6. In verse 2, and they that have believing masters, that means Christians, let them not despise them or belittle them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to hold some words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, for the next few moments as we look into the Scriptures and break the bread of life, we do want you to speak to all of our hearts. Make our hearts good ground, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear. Help me to speak clearly as we look at this final chapter in 1 Timothy. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Now, we have slowly worked our way through this pastoral letter that Paul wrote to his son in the faith. Timothy had been left in Ephesus to pastor the church there, it was a decent-sized church because the book of Acts says there were a lot of elders that Paul gathered with him when he told them that it was likely they would never see his face again. And you remember how they wept and cried. We then looked at some of the items related to men and women in church and our actions in church. We looked at the qualifications for people who will be bishops, deacons. Last time we looked at how the Bible says we should treat widows and elders. Now then, you can see in chapter 6, verse 2, he's speaking directly to people who were servants. Now, the Greek word can also mean slaves. In ancient Rome, there were different categories of slaves. And I want to remind you that going back in ancient history, the story of this world from the beginning, even in Genesis, all the way up to the end, is the story of those who conquer and those who are conquered. And in ancient times, if people were conquered, that usually meant the women became the property of the conquerors. The children then often were raised to work for the people who conquered, and then men often lost their lives because the conquerors didn't want another kind of rebellion. In certain instances, people were forced into slavery. Now, there are different kinds of slavery in ancient times as well as in the Bible. So even in the Old Testament, it talks about those who are slaves, and it gives specific rules for their treatment. It even says that if you are a slave, 
and you're happy to abide with your master, then you're to take your earlobe and have it punctured as a sign that you want to remain with that particular owner. Well, at the same time, then, you can see in the Old Testament that slaves were not treated as though they were not people. Amongst the ancient Romans, then, you had forced slavery, but then you also had indentured servitude. Now, indentured servitude could mean I go to work for Kevin or Kevin goes to work for me because there's a particular debt that's owed between us, and we have to work until that debt is paid. Once that debt is paid, then I'm free to go. Now, you can go to Pakistan today, and people who work in the brickyards over there, if a husband and a wife die before they paid a debt to the owner, then their kids have to remain in the brickyards and continue to work off the debt that mom and dad incurred. That's a form of slavery. When I lived in Saudi Arabia 30 years ago, 32 years ago, it was common to find Bangladeshi, Pakistanis, Sudanese people, folks from the Philippines, even people from India, who when they came to work in Saudi Arabia as maids and butlers and other jobs, the moment they landed, their bosses took their passport, they didn't have a way to communicate with anybody. They couldn't travel and go anywhere. And they often worked in these lavish homes, but they lived in a room that wasn't even the third of the size of the Sunday school room in the back. And that is because in Saudi Arabia, they still practice indentured servitude. Now, I've met a lot of people who were part of that lifestyle, and the only reason I got to know some of them was because of the underground church. I'd sometimes go to the Filipino church, and the Filipinos and other people, if they had to go shopping for their master or mistress, then when they were at the grocery store, they would then sneak out as quick as they could to go to a church service to spend 15 to 20 minutes fellowshipping with Christians and then to hear the gospel. Imagine that. Imagine that being your life. You can only sneak away once every four or five weeks to go to church. So understanding that, some of them were Christian in that lifestyle. And here's what Paul says in verse 1. If you're a servant and you're under the yoke, it says, count your masters worthy of all honor. Now, under the yoke can mean several things. Galatians speaks about the yoke of bondage, but we also know in Matthew it speaks about taking up the yoke of Christ for my yoke is easy. So if a person takes up the yoke, then whoever is our employer, we're not to be disrespectful. Now that's a very difficult thing to imagine when you consider in Europe and here in North America where there had been uh, slavery and uh, horrible and horrific kinds of slavery to think that someone would count a master worthy of honor. Well, it says here that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. Now, God didn't raise up Christians to be insurrectionists, and God didn't raise up Christians to pull knives out and kill people just because they're mistreating us or we don't like them. 
If you can escape, escape. If you can run away, do like Philemon. Get away from them as fast as you can. But in verse 2 he says, if you have a, a Christian who is in charge of you, don't hate them. Don't hate them. But count them as a brethren. But you also notice Paul said the same thing regarding Philemon when he wrote that letter to him and said, somebody's run away from you and I want you to treat him like he's a brother also. Now, these two verses, particularly verse 2, this is the verse that I think is the cornerstone behind why slavery in England and slavery in America fell apart. Of all of the ancient societies, no other society ever dealt with slavery and its dissolution until Christianity came along. The Egyptians practiced it. The Assyrians excuse me, practice it. The Greeks practice it. The Persians practice it. All the way up through most of history, but when Christianity came, the reason things fell apart in slavery is because the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And it doesn't matter what color you are, how wealthy you are, God sees us all the same. So when people began to look at this verse and they realized people were owning other people, and in this particular society and over in England, people weren't even counted as persons, Christians began to see this is ungodly. They have souls just like anybody else. And before you know it, you have the abolitionists and Quakers and other people, Wesleyans, who started saying that this whole thing is wicked and it's evil. On the basis of that, that's why hearts were changed and people changed in their conduct toward people of different colors. So verse 2, he says, but rather do your work or labor because they are faithful and beloved. It's hard to believe with the pictures and images and stories that we hear, but I have heard uh, stories of slaves speaking that are recorded by the Library of Congress, and I have heard their testimonies of some of them saying they were raised on this plantation, then they were moved to this plantation, and they talked about how one master was better than another one. Hardly anybody wanted to get shipped off to Texas or Mississippi or Louisiana. But there were places where you had the opportunity to work and become a freedman and have your freedom because of your, your labor. And it's in the northern parts of America that we began to see verse 2 take root. That's why everybody wanted to escape from the south, make it up north, and then upwards into Canada, because they had a great grasp of verse number 2, because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. So then Paul says, if anybody teaches anything uh, other than what we're saying, other than wholesome, sound, healthy words, he said, that person isn't good. So we, we should look for people who are not trying to produce rebellion and rioting. This is why I know that movements like uh, BLM and back in the 50s and 60s with Malcolm X and all of them, this is why I know these things were unscriptural. Because God's plan for us as Christians has never been for us to be angry at somebody and then go out and burn their house down. And then go and burn somebody's city down. However mad we may be. 
There are other ways you can express your anger without having to do do, do things like that. So verse 3, it says here, according to the doctrine which is according to godliness. So our conduct should be like God's conduct. We've heard people say, what would Jesus do? A better question to ask, since we have the four Gospels, is what did Jesus do? You know as well as I do, the Roman Empire was wicked. But Jesus never had anybody out there marching in the streets and saying, we're going to overthrow the government, we're going to throw the emperor from the throne. You know what Jesus did? When the disciples came to him and said, look, should we pay taxes to these wicked people? Jesus said, go down there to the river, and you're going to catch a fish. And when you catch a fish, throw your hand inside the mouth. You're going to find a, a, a coin, a Roman coin, and it's going to have an inscription on it, pay your taxes. Now, we don't have to like that. And some of the things that we see in Scripture aren't necessarily the kinds of things that are, that, that, that are happy and pleasing to our conscience. But nevertheless, you can't just take a shot at every IRS agent that shows up at your house. You can't, you can't go to shooting at, at, at people because they're coming to, to take a census at your front door. The Bible says if somebody's teaching otherwise or other than what he said in the first two verses, he said, verse 4, that person's proud, doesn't know anything, doting about questions. That, that means this person is, is dwelling on questions that produce strife with words. You know what strifes of words are? That's when people constantly want to argue and produce discord with their conversation. Have you ever met people like that? that no matter what subject you get on, they have to play the devil's advocate and produce strife. They always want to argue. And the scripture here says in verse 4, that is not what we should do. It says, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, or suspicions. So where you find discord, disharmony, and fighting, you're going to find envy, strife, suspicion of one another. And then verse 5, perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such withdraw yourself. So perversity has to do with taking something that's correct and twisting it and bending it in a different direction. If we say that a person's mind or lifestyle is perverse, we're saying it's crooked. That means there's a standard that is straight or godly, but when a person moves into something that's ungodly, then that lifestyle becomes perverse. And in the end of verse 5, you can see they say that gain is godliness. But Paul says from these kind of people avoid. Now what does it mean when people say gain is godliness? There are people who believe and certainly do teach that the more material blessings that you have, the greater and better sign of God's blessing there is on your life. So they don't like the verse in James that says, Hath not God chosen the poor in this world rich in faith? There are plenty of people who honestly believe the more they have, the better the blessing of God looks to people that are on them. And so they think that the acquirement of more materials is an indication of the blessing of God. It doesn't mean that at all. We all know people who are well off but are not necessarily 
happy. We've all met people like that. And so we don't want to count uh, the material things. But when you run into that, here's what the Lord said, from such people withdraw yourself. So there's some people in your life you have to cease from uh, spending time with, too much time with. I mean, we certainly need to be able to reach people who don't know God. But, but people who have a mentality like this, you just move on away from them because bad habits, or I should say bad thinking and bad manners can become bad habits in your own life. You've got to pay attention to that. Verse 6, he said, godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. So that's in contrast to the last two sentences of verse 5. What is contentment? Happiness, satisfied uh, attitudes. Paul said, I've learned to be content in whatever state I am in. If I'm full, I'm happy. If I'm abounding in blessing, I'm happy. If I'm hungry, I'm happy. But the one thing, according to verse 6, that's important is that we be godly in our conduct and godly in our behavior. Because godliness with contentment is a great gain. So it's not the more that we have. It's the more of our hearts that is surrendered to God. To qualify that statement, he says, we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. That means every one of us in here, when we were born, we were born naked. And the first set of clothing that ever got on our body, somebody put it on for us. And in old age, when we exhale our last breath and we die, do you realize somebody else is going to put another set of clothing on that body too? And it won't be us. It'll be the mortician or it might be family. So he says... We didn't bring anything into this world. We definitely can't carry it out. You can't take your house into eternity. Your car isn't going with you, even though there have been plenty of people who, who have wanted to be buried with trinkets. The ancient Egyptians, when they put somebody in a, in a sarcophagus, they uh, removed all of their organs, put them in a clay jar, and then filled that that tomb, depending on how wealthy the person was, with all kinds of gold cups, gold jewelry, because in their belief, when you got over to the other side in eternity, at that point, you're going to be able to use all of those gold cups. It's untrue. That is not how eternity operates. But plenty of people around the world honestly believe that. But verse 8 says, having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Food and raiment. Now, he doesn't even say having food, raiment, and shelter. He just says food and raiment. Now, I realize that there are plenty of people on this earth that every day they're praying, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, and they didn't have any bread yesterday. There are a whole lot of people that are praying for clothing and attire and they are scantily clad because they don't have anything. But here's what Paul is getting at. If you've got something to put in your mouth to keep body and soul together, and you've got something to, cl to clothe you so that you can be modest in your dress, you should be happy and thankful that God has blessed you that way. That's where your contentment should be. Don't be like Job's wife. 
Job was happy and content with God so long as she had cattle, material blessings, and all of her kids. And then when she started losing things one by one, she lost her faith in God and turned away from the king. She still had food. She still had raiment. Now, that doesn't soothe the broken heart that comes from losing children and losing property. But all, all Paul is saying is, in our relationship with him, you should never put people or things before God. And I know that every one of us that are in here right now, if we go home and open up our cupboards, there's food all throughout those cupboards. And if we're not happy with what we see in the cupboards, we can go to the refrigerator. And once we look in the fridge, if we're not happy with what's there, we'll go into the deep freezer and we'll throw it open and then we'll look. And if we don't like what's in the deep freezer, we'll go in the second deep freezer. And then we'll lift the top on that. And then some people even have a third deep freezer, and they'll throw the top back and look on that. So they've got plenty of food. And, of course, if we start talking about clothing, oh, my goodness. I mean, we, we all have closets that are filled with clothes. Yes. Lots of shoes, lots of dresses, lots of pants, lots of suits. And so Paul says, having food and raiment, Let's be happy. Let's be happy. But he does go on to tell us in verse 9, but the ones who will, see, they, they purpose in their heart that they're going to be rich, they fall into temptation and a snare. So when the objective of your life is to become wealthy, and that is the main goal of your life, you are creating for yourself your own temptations and your own traps, and you're going to fall into foolish and hurtful lust, which drown men in destruction and perdition. You know, when I was uh, this past weekend at the men's retreat, one of the uh, stories they told me and then showed me on the video was a man had a camera out where he set some traps, and he liked to look at the camera and see what kind of animals are coming through. And so in one of the traps, uh, a fox had come. And got caught in there. So quite naturally, the fox is yelling and jumping around and yipping and everything. And then he said after about maybe a half hour of that fox making that noise, and he's showing me this not in real time, but he's speeding it up so I can see it. Then all of a sudden, the fox stopped moving, and the fox kind of got in one of them positions like maybe he was going to get ready to attack. And then into that picture comes the coyote. And that coyote comes, and, and he just starts circling that fox that's in that trap, and he does that for about three hours. Now, the whole time he's doing that, he, that coyote would yip and make a noise, and he just circled that fox and never went near it. And then finally, you could see that fox just start going crazy because then into the picture came a second coyote. And both of those coyotes went around that fox maybe two times, and almost like instinct, both of them just attacked that fox and mauled it. Didn't eat it, just left it almost dead. Still alive when the guy got to him. So here's what will happen. If, if a person, if, if in their life their desire is just to be rich and only rich, think about the kind of snare that creates for somebody. I want to be wealthy. I don't care who I step on. I don't care who I hurt. I don't care what relationships I break up. And that person doesn't even realize that the devil is circling. See? 
Just circling them, paying attention to that attitude, watching what's going on in that heart, and then pretty soon that person ends up just like a drowning man in a pool, unable to save himself, and then it's all over. So God says through Paul, verse 10, the love of money is the root of all evil. Yeah. Now, Reverend Ike who used to teach over there in the East Coast, he used to say, oh, no, it's not the love of money that's the root of all evil. He says the lack of money that's the root of all evil. That's what he said. Unfortunately, we never have followed that man in his teachings. But but for the love of money is the root of all evil, while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows, people say that the oldest occupation in the world is what? Prostitution. Remember the story in the book of Genesis with Judah? How he was going down the road one day, looked over, saw a prostitute on the side of the road, went in unto her without knowing that the, the veiled lady was his daughter-in-law. And he ended up leaving his trinkets with her. And in the end, she demonstrated to him that he had not dealt honorably with her with regard to giving his other son to be her husband when he was raised. Well, the love of money is the root of all evil. And when people want it bad enough, they dream, they imagine, they come up with ways to get it out of other people's pockets. And I have no doubt that not just in the church, but in the world, in the secular world, this mentality governs a lot of people. You take somebody like Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, some of these other people. I don't know any of them personally. I don't know anything about their personal beliefs. I don't know anything about uh, how they handle themselves. But I'm going to assume that to go from zero to one of the top ten billionaires on the planet, you probably stepped over a lot of people and stepped on a lot of people. And I think there's a reason that when it comes to marriages and weddings that so many of these folks, they live on different coasts. There's no sense in getting divorced. I mean, you got access to all that money. If he wants to have as many women as he wants and she wants to have a few little guys over here to take care of her, then no sense in breaking all of that up because the love of money becomes the root of all kinds of evil. It governs how we conduct ourselves. So then, he says in verse 10, some people have erred from the faith. Too much money can cause you to change in how you handle yourself with respect to God. Now, there's a little verse in Proverbs that most of my life I've prayed and believed for, and I don't know, maybe I should change how I pray, but there's a little verse in Proverbs that says this, uh, Lord, uh, don't give me poverty lest I steal, and, and don't give me riches lest I forget your name. But, but in saying that, I'm not saying I don't want abundance. I want to serve God. I want to have more than one coat to bless somebody who doesn't have a coat. I want to be able to help somebody that desperately needs help. But what I don't want is to be put in a position to where because God has blessed me, I no longer have time for God. And there are plenty of people that are like that. First Timothy chapter 6 is where we are. Think of that now. There are, there are people who, when they did not have any money or a lot of material blessings, they lived in the church and they fellowshiped with people all the time. 
But then when God began to bless them, and the blessings were so big that they now didn't need people to pray for them in church like they formerly did, now they don't come to church. So they're gone five Sundays, gone two months, gone three months. And then if you ask them, uh, you say to them, we've missed you, where have you been? Then, of course, then their answer is usually something to justify this new behavior. But when they didn't have anything, then they constantly had people on their knees praying for them. Ask God to open up a door of promotion for us on the job or something. So verse 10 says that uh, some people have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I can't tell you the sadness that I've encountered with people who fight because of a love of money. And the, the number of situations that I've seen up close and personal right here in Nebraska and Kansas where somebody dies, and then when they die, they leave behind a whole lot of real estate or farmland, and then you just got siblings ready to just devour one another over that money. Yeah. So here's a mom and dad or a grandma and grandpa. They work for 30 to 40 years, pay off a farm, get all their bills taken care of, and then they want to leave it to their kids. And you have one child that wants to continue farming, but the rest of them say, let's auction it off. I want that money coming in as quick as possible. And it produces division. You can see it with personal trinkets, memorabilia. Things that are passed down from a great-grandparent. They go from one generation to the next. People ready to fight over those things. The love of money is the root of all evil, and it does cause people to be pierced through with a lot of sorrow. So Paul continues in talking to Timothy in verse 11. He says, man of God, you flee these things. Stay away from this, this kind of attitude. And he said, you pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. All of those are self-explanatory. He says, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. So all of us have an eternal destiny. Every baby conceived, born, has an eternal destiny. We go up to be with God if we know Christ, or we go down into hell if we don't know the Lord, have a relationship with him. So there's an eternal destiny. And he says, lay hold on eternal life. So that means it can be a possession. And this is what John says in his epistle, that we have eternal life when we have God. So verse 13, he says, I give you charge in the sight of God, basically a command, who quickens all things, makes things alive. And before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. So you can see in the last sentence of verse 12, he talks about Timothy having a good profession amongst many witnesses. Now he uses Jesus as an example. What happened with Jesus? He was betrayed by Judas. He was then arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They brought him before the Jewish hierarchy where he had to face one lying witness after another. He was judged, convicted, sentenced to die, but yet despite all of that, he never blasphemed God. He never did anything that was unscriptural. In fact, you read the statements he made on the cross, he's quoting the Bible the whole time. And so 
Paul is telling Timothy, if Jesus could witness a good profession before Pontius Pilate, you do the same thing in the midst of an ungodly world. Do not allow the world to cause you to lose faith in God. Fight the good fight of faith. War a good warfare. Don't be entangled with the things of this world, but be a good soldier. So verse 14, he says that you keep his commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, Paul believed Jesus was going to return again, and he said as much right there in verse 14. He said to Timothy, Jesus is coming again. So that is our hope. That is our belief. One day the dead in Christ are going to rise up, and we which are alive are going to be called away, First Thessalonians 4. And we're going to be with the Lord forever and ever and ever. And the last sentence of First Thessalonians 4 says, comfort one another with these words. So anytime I hear somebody say that, you know, the teaching of the coming of the Lord, that makes me nervous and afraid. Then you hadn't heard it taught the correct way. The Bible says it should comfort you and it should encourage you. So then when Jesus returns in verse 15, then we will all know who is the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Now they just had that big deal for the Queen of England who passed away and had that long funeral and day after day after day that was on the news and people were talking about that and she lived well into her 90s. I can tell you right now, as elaborate as that funeral was and all the palaces she has all across the uh, the uh, Europe, or I should say Great Britain, with all the palaces the royal family had, they don't hold a candle to the royalty and the majesty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not at all. Not at all. Every knee will bow before the Lord. Now, if you went to the presence of the Queen of England or maybe even of the one of Sweden or somewhere like that, or Denmark, I should say, then you, you probably going to have to curtsy or bow or something like that. But our president, when he goes, he doesn't bow before any king or any queen. But I guarantee you, every president, every prime minister, every leader of planet Earth, one day going to bow their knees before Jesus. There's no doubt about that. They're going Every tongue will confess. So verse 16, he only is immortal, dwells in light, which nobody can approach, nobody has seen nor can see, in whom be honor and power everlasting. So he says, I charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded or arrogant, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Now the Bible says wealth and riches will take flight like an eagle, and fly away. We've seen that. You, you can have money and it disappears just like this. Now, I, I remember when, when we were saving money to, to work on putting up this first building here, and I still remember how, how, how he used to tell me, he said, now, you know, saving, this isn't going to be the problem. He said, it's going to take, take a while to save it up, but he said, once you start spending it, it's going to go just like that. It starts going just like that. And you see people in life, they spend all of their health to acquire wealth. And in an old age, they then have to spend all of that wealth to try to get their health back. 
Yeah. How many people have gone broke because they've had to go to the hospital several times? How many people have ended up essentially bankrupt, turned over to the debt collectors by the hospitals and doctors because they couldn't afford the payments of whatever condition they might have had and whatever procedure might have been performed on their body? But here's what the Scripture says. Those that are rich, tell them, don't be arrogant, because it's God that's given us everything in this world richly to enjoy. This earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There's beauty no matter where you go on this planet. I had people last weekend in West Virginia, and they were saying, well, what, what is there out there in, in Nebraska and Kansas to see other than corn and wheat? I said, God's people. I said, God's got people out there. And I said, beyond that, I said, it, 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 it is something majestic about um, on a beautiful day when the sky is clear and it's sunny and you're driving up a hill and then you're coming down a hill into some of these small towns and it just has almost like a postcard picture. You know, just the perspective, how pretty it is. And I said, some places out there, you can stand on some bluff and you can look out and see 10, 15, 20 miles in one direction to see another town. And they just kind of looked at me like, well, that just doesn't appeal to me. I said, well, well, here in the mountains, I said, you can stand here and look around. All you see are trees. You can't see but 100 feet around you. So you've got to come out there where you can breathe that good air and have the good life out there where we are. Well, God has given us all of this to enjoy. Think of the people who live down in uh, Key West, Florida. None of us like the storms, but it's pretty down there. Can you imagine being raised there? People that are raised in uh, Greece, and they're by those beautiful mountains, lovely lakes. People on the Mediterranean Sea, prettiest blue water you've ever seen in your life, and this is all they have known. God has given all of this to people on this earth richly to enjoy. We've got oil in the ground. We sit on the largest water reserves right here in America, the Ogallala Aquifer. You can go to other places, find diamond, cold, gold. Just about every kind of resource you can think of, going back to Genesis, and the Bible says God gave all these things to us to be able to enjoy. So he says in verse 18, They that do good, that they be rich in good works and ready to distribute, willing to communicate. That means being sociable and willing to give. If God has blessed you and you have a lot, be willing to share it with other people. Now, there is a verse in the Bible that says it's more blessed to give than to receive. But don't ever become the kind of person that you don't want to receive when someone's trying to give. If someone wants to bless you, let them bless you. And if they're trying to bless you, don't take it as a sign that I'm always in need and people see me that way. What you ought to do is take it as a sign that God is touching the hearts of people to bless you. Because there have been plenty of times when you may have prayed and said, God, could, could you just talk to somebody about maybe helping us in some way or another? And then when God starts doing it, then you start complaining. So the scripture is clear here. 
If you're rich in good works, that's wonderful, but be ready to distribute. Help people, bless people, care for people. And in this way, you're laying up in store for yourself a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. You can store for yourself eternal rewards by being a blessing to people here on planet Earth. Absolutely. Yep. That's why I'm not surprised at all when, 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 when them little old ladies say to me, Pastor, you know we made you a pecan pie. I said, put her right here. Put it right here. Thank you so very much. Love that pecan pie. And I'm not shocked and surprised at all when the middle-aged lady says to me, Pastor, we made you a pecan pie. Here it is right here. I say, thank you. Thank you. And then when some of the younger ladies in the church say, Pastor, we made you a pecan pie. Here it is right here. Just put, it, put it right there in my hand, and I'll enjoy it, and I'll have it. Make sure you get started with that now. Get started with that. Okay. So then he says in the end, Timothy, keep what is committed to your trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. What are oppositions of science? Technical, academic, and professional speech that is used to support a particular position but yet you've got other people that are opposed to it with another perspective or view. Even in ancient times, there were people who believed their beliefs were scientific. Now, how many times in the last three years did we hear this phrase? Follow the science. Follow the science. And basically what that meant was everybody should go along with what the government is saying in regards to your medical care or some kind of vaccination. Well, whether you're vaccinated or not, that's, that's your own problem and that's your own business. But the thing I'm trying to emphasize is that there were scientists on both sides saying different things. Yeah. And even now, if you look at it to the run-up of this election, there was a time two years ago where I turned the television on or I'm listening to the radio and Dr. Fauci was on every station. He was on every program. They'd record him and have his statements. They were citing him. They were quoting him. You can look at these programs now and it's hard to find him because they don't want to put him out there now. Because you had people that were saying, well, everyone should take the shot. If you get the shot, then you won't get the COVID. And then pretty soon the people took the shot, and then they still ended up with the coronavirus. Then they start saying, okay, if you take the vaccine, if you get the coronavirus, it'll help you so it won't be so bad. And so then people were taking the shot, and you still had people that were having terrible side effects, and some people weren't having bad side effects at all. Then they were saying, okay, if you get the corona shot, then you might even be giving it to other people because they're giving you a live virus. So you had all of these different opinions and viewpoints going back and forth. And you know what Paul said? He said, avoid all that profane and vain babbling. You essentially need to make a decision for yourself. And you need to study things on your own and look at the evidences for yourself rather than just being swayed by people who are just trying to make money and profit off of you. Yeah, that, that's what needs to happen. 
And then in the end, he said, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Now, we ran into that earlier. But isn't that amazing to think that people can follow science and turn from God? Isn't that what happened with evolution? 140 years ago or more, when Mr. Darwin came out with his book, The Origin of the Species, and he started promoting his belief about the survival of the fittest, and then pretty soon, even he had gone to college to study the Bible, but he walked away from all of that. And when he started his whole process of studying evolution, he still believed in God somewhat. But the scientific process that led him to believe that man is the product of evolution caused him to believe that this world doesn't need a God. And that's what science can do. There are plenty of people today that have strayed from the faith because of science. And it doesn't have to be that way. Because the Scripture says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were made by the Word of God. So if the Bible says that, then it doesn't matter what anybody imagines in their writings and what they concoct and dream up. Hold to what the Scriptures say. Plenty of archaeologists have written reports and books saying that the things in the Bible aren't true. And they have gone into these places and excavated, and without being able to understand anything, they'll find a little spoon that'll be two feet below the, sub, the subsoil of the, of the earth, and then they'll start imagining how that spoon got there. And then pretty soon they have reconstructed an entire house and an entire village, and they've reconstructed an entire civilization, and it could have very well been some traveler going from east to west dropped the spoon on the road. But they've created this whole thing that caused people to believe the Bible isn't true. Let's hold to what the Word says. Amen? Wow. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the Scriptures and for what Paul told Timothy. And we pray that you'll continue to lead and guide us into truth as we walk with you in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen, Amen. Anybody?